0: Uh, I do have to say, if this is your first Sunday here at Refuge, first of all, welcome. Um, But I do want to warn you, you're arriving in the middle of a series, currently in the series, the God I Don't Understand series, and what's even worse is you're now going to listen to the second of a one-two punch. So um, last week's message was on understanding evil, and so we're continuing on from there. Uh, But don't worry, you won't get totally lost. We'll still uh, have some good time today, and you will still be better for having heard God's word. Um, I do want to just pray real quick before we we get into um, the bulk of our message here. Heavenly Father, God, we are... Lord, we are limited people. We are created beings. We have much potential, but Lord, we also... Acknowledge our shortcomings. And um, Lord, as we look into your word and we discuss some very difficult things, some hard things, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, illuminate our hearts, give us wisdom beyond our experience and our years, Lord, to handle difficult topics well. Lord, as we discuss the topic of judgment this morning, Lord. I pray that we leave with a fuller understanding of who you are as our Lord and Savior and God and King, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, this morning we are going to be talking about judgment, so, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Last week we did talk about understanding evil, and so if you've missed that, it is on the on the podcast, um, it's sort of we are going to be building on some of those ideas, and so we'll recap a few things, and we'll we'll continue to build on those and build on those topics, uh, those concepts as we go. But uh, today we are going to be talking about judgment, and I know that this there's sometimes a lot of emotion around uh, a lot of the the different topics that that we do discuss, especially in this particular series, and so. Um, I, would, I would say if, if you start to get um, bewildered, lost, scared, angry, uh, just wait till the end. It's just, you know, there's, wait for the whole thing. Uh, wait for the full thought. Uh, but last week, we did talk about uh, evil, understanding evil. So just a few different things. Number one, we talked about the definitions of evil and of sin. And so we talked about evil... And we defined evil as, a, as perversion, deviation from the perfect or the complete. We talked about sin as being a missing of the mark of perfection. And so I want to kind of have those soon around sort of, sort of the top of our, uh, top of our brains here. Uh, also, we talked about the fact that Satan is the originator of evil and sin. Not humankind and not God. It was, it was Satan. We talked about that last week. He also talked about the fact that because humankind was created to be the imager of God on earth to have rule, to have dominion, when Adam and Eve sinned, it impacted all of their domain. It impacted all of creation. And so when we do talk about sin, we do talk about evil. It's something that permeates our entire universe We talked about the question that's posed as the, the problem of evil. Is God good, or is he powerful? Can he be both? And we talked about that this question is rooted in perception. That's where it has to begin. Where do we perceive this? Because it, you know, he sees the beginning from the end. right? And we don't have perfect perspective, but he does. We are limited beings. We do not see everything. We can't understand everything. We're limited to moment by moment. Right? We we exist now. We remember the past, but the past doesn't exist. It's a moment gone. And we, we can't see the future. We can't see the future moments that we'll live. We are very limited beings with a very small perspective. However, God has given us minds to understand the abstract. So when we do talk about some of these things, the past, the future, uh, eternity, God made it so that we could begin to put these concepts together to make good decisions, to have a good understanding around this thing. But we will never have perfect, uh, perfect perception until we're with him. And the last thing uh, that I wanted to bring up today to kind of keep in our minds. The real question that we arrived at uh, after last week's sermon was it's not so much the question of if he's good or if he's powerful. We, we, we demonstrated that in scripture. But if he is all powerful, the real question that comes up is can he be trusted? Is he just? Becomes the real question. And honestly, that's the kind of question that a lot of people don't want to deal with for reasons that we will talk about today. And so as we begin this, we do want to also start with the definition. We want to define what judgment is. And some of the definition, or some of the words I should say, that we're going to define, we use them one way when we come into church, when we read the Bible, and then we use them in a completely different way outside that context. So it doesn't make it very easy for us to have some of these conversations with others because we either don't redefine terms or we ourselves get lost in those definitions. So let's look at this. Judgment. Judgment is defined as the formation of an opinion after consideration or deliberation. Or another way to say it is to to make a decision. That's judgment. And that's the overall definition of what judgment is. Now when we think about that, right? it's different when we go to Scripture. When we go to Scripture, we kind of have a different understanding around that. And in fact, the Scripture itself, the word that's used for judgment, has much more to do with the concept of justice. Justice itself. As far as when God judges it's tied to the concept and the ideal of overall justice for mankind. And as we'll see, justice according to God's character. Now when we say it out loud, the, the definition for judgment, we say like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense that judgment would be tied to justice, but I don't think we conceptually do that real well. I think we somehow separate things out, and I think there is some confusion between those different things. One thing that we can, um, we can see is in the definition for judgment, one, one thing that should kind of make us a little scared about how it's used, just in our own vernacular, how, how we, we define it just in, in talking with other people, not, not in the context of Scripture, is that word that's thrown in there, it includes the word opinion, to hear it when we went through the definition? Formation of an opinion after consideration, right? So this, this word opinion, that's, that should scare us when we talk about judgment. Because now it's not necessarily the last part of the definition, after consideration and deliberation. Sometimes judgment is now becoming simply the opinion. It's the opinion without all matters weighed. And it should kind of scare us. So now when we look at that word, especially in our culture today, the word judgment, if we're to use it just in everyday language, can actually kind of mean anything. And it's very difficult to start evaluating good judgment versus poor judgment. I think that we would hope that the judgments that we make or when we talk about judgments as human beings, we would also tie that idea to justice but sadly, I don't think that always happens. I think we more so kind of corner ourselves back into opinion with a lot of judgments. And obviously, we're going to bring it into the, into the uh, area of, of Scripture here in just a second. Um, but humans, just in general, we as human beings, we're fans of justice. So, so if we're connecting the word judgment and justice together, we as human beings, we, we like justice. Justice is good. We like that. Um, and, and, and honestly, we, we see it from the very beginning of our lives, right? So if you're huh, all the mothers out there, uh, think about your children, right? Dads, you can too. I said Mother's because It's Mother's Day. Uh, but when we think about that, little humans, tiny humans, they are preoccupied with the idea of justice, except they don't use the word justice. Maybe some of your kids do. They will use the word what? Fair. fair. Ah, Man, we are tracking today. I'm feeling good. <laughs> Being fair. Think about this. Think about all the different little situations that pop up. Right? She took the toy I was playing with. That's an injustice. They would say that's not fair. His piece of cake is bigger than mine. You may have had that this morning. <laughs> His waffle's bigger than mine. That's not fair. I wanted them to play my game. We always play her game. That's not fair. What they're really saying is there is injustice that's taken place. Now, for all you parents who have to then listen to all of this, justice has a very narrow scope. And What is the scope of a child's justice? There's volumes and volumes of wisdom being thrown up to this <laughs> area right here. But I'm sure it boils down to it's very self-centered, focused judgment, right? Or I should say justice. That's, that's where it kind of focuses. It's not fair because they wanted their way, or they wanted the best thing, or they wanted the better outcome, or they wanted the bigger piece of chocolate cake. And so we have to learn some of these different things, and the principles of justice go outside of your own mind and heart oh my goodness. You mean that there's fairness to be had between lots of people? There can be a decision like that? Yes, and in fact, parents, we, we listen to the scenario. Hey, I was playing with that toy. Alright. We sit in judgment. Sometimes, you know, if they're old enough to have the conversation, what happened? And we'll deliberate. We'll hear one side, we'll hear the other side. And a lot of these things, are, they're pretty easy to navigate. right? We're not deciding some crazy thing, of oh, please, you know, submit evidence and, you know, opening arguments and closing arguments, no, it's pretty simple, judgment is simple and judgment is swift, justice takes place, right, well, how about this, let's set a timer, you get it for this amount of time, you get it for that amount of time, that works for my kids, they have no idea how much time is on the timer, and after the first or second time, they forget, and so then it's great, because they forget, but then justice has been served, and it's agreed upon, and then we can move forward right? Justice. We like justice. And the thing is, is that we as parents, we, we, we deliberate through these things, and it's pretty nice to be able to do that. But then at a certain point, sometimes there's a situation and it happens, and they say, that's not fair. And we would say, yeah, I agree that's not fair, but you guess what? Life's not fair. So what's interesting is then as they're learning principles of how to make judgments, proper judgments, their, their idea and their concept of justice is being formed, they start to hear this new, t- new idea and this new topic that life is not fair. Hold on a second. We're learning how to have proper justice in our relationships, and then we hear this, I mean, out of left field, concept and idea, life's not fair, why isn't life fair? When did that happen? So remember all those things that are pretty easy to figure out? Guess what? Adults can't figure those things out. Someone else has to figure it out for them. Or maybe sometimes someone lives being not fair. And so we, we start to then inform them of this idea you know what? There's not perfect justice. Not only is life not fair, the world is not fair. So what's very interesting is, just just with that example, we start to highlight some really high principles that there can be deliberated justice, right? Proper judgment between parties. There can be agreement. We can learn to share. We can learn, and you know what's even more interesting is sometimes we say, you know what? It's not fair. You were playing with that first, but we can say, but what's the kind thing to do? Maybe to prefer someone else. And so then we're teaching them these principles that, you know what, maybe it's not fair, but maybe it's better that you love someone else. So we're teaching these really big ideas, and then we throw this curveball. Life's not fair, and the world's not fair. They then have to navigate this concept and this idea of knowing and understanding what deliberated proper justice is and to then see it not played out in the world. And so they learn that the world doesn't play by rules that are very well established that should make sense between people and these and that's how we live. The rest of our lives we have to live in a world that's really not fair and we kind of just have to figure it out. Isn't that weird? When you put it into that context, all of a sudden we wade out into the world with a proper understanding of what justice is and sometimes a total inability to actually help that justice come about. Some of us might walk past someone on the street and clearly that person just got kicked out of their apartment and they're loading everything into their car and they're going to be one of those folks that you see parked in a, in a supermarket, living out of their car. Is that fair? Well, truth is, I don't know what the situation is. But we'd say overall, we'd say human dignity, family, neighbors, there should be some place where this person can receive some form of stability from somewhere and we see this injustice and we say the world's not fair and maybe we can do something but maybe we can't maybe it's an institutional thing but we see this all the time and so for us to then approach God's word to say that we somehow can show up to God's word and we can look at what it says and we can lay a stamp down and say God's not fair we are terrible judges We are terrible people to assess what's really fair, what's not fair, because even we don't live according to those principles all the time. So then who are we to then lay a judgment against God to say that you're not fair? But that's what we do. uh, Our all life is full of injustice. We want to do the right thing. And if we think more and more about the injustices that we see, we have to remember, because we as believers, we have the benefit of God's perspective taught to us so we can start to evaluate things properly. Remember, the things we see, sin, evil, death, none of these are part of a perfect plan. But when we look around, we see imperfection, we see death, sin, and justice. These are all ramifications of what? This is the ramifications of sin and evil. Sin and evil introduced all of a sudden throw a big wrench in this whole idea and concept of justice. So what is God to do? See, God has already made promises. He already made promises to Adam and Eve. So how can He fulfill the things that He promised? when then they sin how can he do this see god himself was unaffected by this imperfection brought about from sin god is perfect he never had a catalyst that pushed him into imperfection we all did so he being able to in his from where he sits on his throne look out and see the beginning and the end and to evaluate and to see all those things taking place, can actually make a decision that is just. He can do it. The trick is, is that for us, we don't have the benefit of sitting in the same seat that God has. Even though there are definitely people that would put themselves in that seat. As having enough wisdom or thought or perspective to make all those decisions. There are definitely some things we can look out and see. That is an injustice. And then we, as God's imagers on earth, we were placed here to have dominion. We try to work through these concepts and ideas. We try to make it work. But in our perspective, we've learned to actually just deal with this reality. Sometimes we do it to such a degree that we simply accept the injustice as just how it is. You might hear this topic, this idea, death is just another part of what? Life. See, we no longer look and see death as the outcome of imperfection that it wasn't supposed to be a part of our experience. And now that it is, where does justice come from? Well, for most people in this world, they've simply accepted the imperfection as just the way it is. We do pretty well when we have to figure out a way to just live in the conditions that we have. We as human beings, we're pretty adaptable. We make it work. We live that way. The thing is, is that we were created by God to be his imagers on earth. We were designed to rule, to have dominion, and to judge properly. That's what we were supposed to do. So guess what? When we look around the world and we see the injustice, and sometimes we say, well, some of that injustice is just going to happen. It's just there. But inherently, God places within us this idea and this concept that we should be bringing about justice. Well, there's only one answer for those things. And it's in this concept of justification. Have you heard that phrase before? Justific- that word before? Justification? If you've been in the church for a while, justification probably, when it, when it pops into your mind, probably carries some theological uh, foundation or baggage to it. But, but honestly, we as people, we use the word a lot, justify. If you are to, to take us out of the church setting, out of the Bible setting, go somewhere else, and to say someone justified their actions, what do they mean? What do we mean by that word? Sorry? They, they defended. Or we'd say, maybe possibly, they're excusing. They're making an excuse. Right? And that, those two represent the positive and the negative aspect of justifying something. Right? So when we think about that, that's, that's how we use justify. Because we could probably replace it with that phrase excuse. We say there's probably either a good a good reason for it, yes, that excuse is proper, that's, that's what we should do or it's just an excuse someone's trying to not receive that thing so let's think about this someone uh, we'll use this again in a second but just for people to live life and even live in their own perfection they're forced to justify their own actions in some way for good or for ill, when they do something, they have to justify it. Prisons are full of people who accomplish acts that were unjust, but in their own mind, they found a way to justify it. They built a morality, they built a scenario where that fits, and it fits for them in their own mind, and the rest of society says, uh, no, no one else sees it like that. You can't do that. We were going to put you away somewhere so you cannot continue to make those incorrect decisions. That's how we use the prisons. Let's think about this. We're going to use the example of of killing someone to death. By the way, Happy Mother's Day again. <laughs> to all you mothers. Okay, now back to excusing killing. Uh, if someone walks up to someone else, just out of the blue, this is the whole story, walk up to some stranger and just kills them right on the street. We'd say, uh, you can't do that. That's wrong. And that person would say, no, it's, I, just, I just wanted to kill that person. We'd say, no, no, what? No, that's not correct. Police come, take the guy away, go to court. What did you do? I killed that guy. Why? I, I just wanted to kill him. Somehow that works in their own morality, that, that that's okay to do. What would we say? What should the judge say? That killing was actually categorized as? That's murder. You can't do that. You can't just live in normal society and accomplish that thing. That's in that's not just that's injustice. No. You will pay for your crime. All right? Next scenario. Let's say that that person instead of just out of the blue is just on the sidewalk. It's in the cover of darkness in the middle of the night, sneak into someone's house and they have a knife. All right? They go into someone's room, maybe they're in your kids' room. Again, happy mother's day. Real sorry about that. But they're in there, and then you kill that person. You don't know, you can't see their face, you don't know what's going on, you don't know what they have or whatever. You kill that person. Same scenario, you go to the court, do all things. same for the judge. What would the judge probably say? What would we say if we had to stand a judgment for that? We would say that killing was justified. Isn't that funny? We'll use that word. That is, that is a justified action because you couldn't see what they were doing. Someone clearly was a threat and a threat to your family. And so, and we put it under the category of, this is not murder, it's self-defense, right? So we even build for ourselves categories within sins to, to work so that we can justify this, so we can live with other people and make this thing work somehow, right? We've, again, we're really good at building structures that help us live. We're pretty adaptable kind of creatures, but think about that. For every, and I used murder, right? It went to the big one. But think about that. For every action that you accomplish, if you're going to live with other human beings, you have to find some way to justify your actions. Because if it's out of accordance of what everyone sees as normal and good, or you have to justify it. So here we have the problem. Because then when we read in God's word and God says, uh, no, this particular thing is sinful, it is imperfect, it is unjust, and there will need to be justice because of that. If that doesn't match up with our definition of justify, we got a problem. We got a problem. This at its crux is the problem that people have with God judging we, as people, as human beings, imperfect and sinful as we are, we build for ourselves justifying measures for our actions. And if they don't match up with God's, we say, God, you are, just like children, God, you are unfair. Why? Why do we do this? Because we have to find a way to live with our own actions. So when confronted with God saying, that's not just, and we'd say, no, that's just, we now have a problem. Who's going to win in the end? Ultimately, God will win. Why? Because he really is kind of in charge of everything. Any freedom that we have here is graciously given. We're given a pretty wide berth as human beings to live justly or unjustly, however that looks, because God is allowing those things to play out. But that's not the end. That's not how they finish. Now, why can, jo- why, can, why can God be the proper judge? Why can he do that? We talked about this before. He's not corrupted. He's outside of that corruption. He, in fact, is perfect. Meaning, if he is perfect, the decisions that he makes will not be what? Imperfect. Imperfect. When he decides between two things, the decision that he makes, by definition, is perfect. Right there. there, There's some of you who may completely disagree with that. Well, I'm sorry. We'll ask God later, and we'll see what he says, because he actually is perfect, and he's totally and completely just, which then goes back to the idea, then, why, God? Why are so many things out of whack? Why are so many things so gross? Why? It's because we are not perfect, and we are not holy, and we are not uncorrupted. God allows us to live as freestanding moral agents, those who have a measure of His uh, His, his image here on earth to live that out. And what we do by our own actions is normally condemn ourselves in accordance with God's idea of judgment and justice. Let's look at some scripture. Let's look at Job 34. Just just be relegated to the fact that most of the rest of what we're going to do is look at the Bible. That's pretty much what we're going to do from here on out. Job chapter 34 verses 10 through twenty, let's look at this. It's a little bit longer. We would have hoped this is the longest passage we're going to read through. Actually, it's not. Never mind. It was uh, shouldn't have promised that. Look at verse ten. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that He should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that He should do wrong. For according to the work of man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather himself, his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. A so pause right there. It's a very poetic way of saying God is the, actually the sustainer of all reality. And if you were to pull back his actual holding together of the universe, it would just cease to exist. So God is very much a part of these things. God is not far from us. Verse 16 If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to the king, worthless one? And to nobles, wicked man. So just understand this. God is no respecter of title. If you're a king, God says, "Uh, you're wicked. There's no quarter given to the fact that you're a king, or you're highly esteemed, or you have a PhD, or whatever. God just says, "Uh, you're wicked. He is not held by those social structures that we build. Verse 19 who shows no partiality to princes, no regard to rich, more than poor, for they are all the work of his hands. I'm sorry, it was in a question, rhetorical. For they are all, uh, for are they all work of his hands? Sorry. In a moment, they die. At midnight, the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away with no human hand. Human beings, when compared to God, are so frail that sometimes without you doing anything, people just die. Their bodies just give out. Now, you compare that to God, who is the rightful judge, really? Who has the power? Who has the perspective? Clearly, it's spoken in a rhetorical because, of course, it's God. And so when we have a being like this, when we have a Father, when we have a Creator, when we have a God who has these kinds of attributes... The perfect, when confronted with imperfection, this becomes the basis for judgment and justice. When the perfect interacts with the imperfect, it just happens. When they collide, you get judgment. And it's the perfect who judges the imperfect. God gave us Standards. He told us what we should do and he gave it to his people first. He chose a people and he gave them a standard. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Be holy, for the Lord your God, I am holy. You should be what I am. If you're my people, then that's how you should be. That's the standard. Next. Next passage. Jeremiah 7.23. Look at this. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. God desires to have a people, a people who live in his justice, who will then be those who live out his justice next passage Exodus chapter 19 and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel this was God's intention I'm going to give you a standard and you need to live according to a standard and and then I'm going to treat you that way well what happens then God gives them a holy standard were they any different than we are so what happened happened Did they do all these things? No. So then we've got a problem. A problem, in quotes. Because God has has given a standard. We, We know who he is. We know his standard. We know that he is perfect, and he told his people, you need to be holy. You need to live perfectly. And so there you go. If God really is a just God, he will not leave a people without a means to find him. And some people throw out the argument. And this is one of the arguments. How can God condemn somebody who lives far away and never hears, has no chance of hearing? And I would say, you know what? I don't, I don't think that scenario exists. I really don't. I think it's more so a Romans kind of situation. I think God is there and present and available. And people just go, No. Because you have examples of people wandering in from places into Israel. That's why there's so many laws concerning the foreigner. So when the foreigner is in your midst, you should treat them this way. Why? Because they need to learn the standard. Because God's idea is that they should also be a part of this. So the scenario where someone's so far away that they have no chance, I don't know if that scenario is really true. I have a friend. I haven't talked to him in a long, long time, man, now that I think about it. And he grew up in a tribe down in South America. And they were far away from everything. So you know what? Just one day, he's 11 years old. You know what he decides to do? I'm going to hollow out a canoe and I'm just going to paddle. I'm just going to go. And he did. And he ended up in Lima. He had to teach himself Spanish on the streets. And he lived on the streets for a while. He's a really, really smart guy. Figures stuff out, right? Ends up meeting some tourists. And they, you know, know, they're hanging out around the area where he was. And he's a really nice guy. So they talked to them and stuff. And and then it comes down to, hey, if you, you know what? You're a real industrious guy. If you ever make it up to the United States, here's my phone number. Just call me. We'll help you. They were really impressed with this guy. And so he thought about that. You know, they went home. They thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. He's like, why not? And so just one day he starts walking. Where's the United States? Uh, it's north. So you just start walking north. And he did. He walked from Lima, Peru. Just, uh, just walked. And he didn't even know he crossed a border. He just wandered in and just found a gas station and all of a sudden he saw the stuff in English and he figured he was in the United States and he finds a phone booth and he calls up the number that he has and he says, hey, I'm here. He says, oh, where are you? He goes, I don't know. He goes out and finds somebody. He's like, I'm, I'm in Texas. Is that near you? He says, no, that's nowhere near me. He's like, but we'll figure it out. Ended up being I do believe he's the chief of police in Petaluma, oddly enough, who at the time happened to be a believer. Well, they shared the gospel with him, and he was saved. He got his GED, went to Georgetown, got a double major in political science and English, married an American girl, and then decided, you know what? It's time I go back to my own tribe. And that's what he did. He went back. So you tell me, is it impossible for someone out in the middle of nowhere? to find God? No. I think that scenario that question is wrong. I think that the Lord has said in fact Jesus said this anyone who seeks finds. Anyone who knocks the door will be open. Right? So I, I, I just don't think that scenario exists. I think that is a false question to ask. Wrong perspective on things. All that being said God does still have a standard. So you can ask, what in the world are we supposed to do then? Well, we as believers we have a lot that we can do. So how do we encapsulate it? How are we supposed to live like this? Micah 6.8 gives us such a great encapsulation of what we're supposed to do. So we're like, oh, Lord, I don't what, 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 what am I supposed to do? It's like, well Micah says, he's already told you what you're supposed to do and look what he says. Does he say keep the feasts? Does he say make sacrifices? Does he say, what, what does he say? He says, I've told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do what? Do justice. You're supposed to live in a just way. Live justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Knit directly in to this understanding of who God is is this idea that he wants his people to live justly. There are so many examples of what God, what God says are just. There are so many passages. I wrote some down. We don't have time to go through them all. But I mean, God caring for the oppressed. Isaiah 117, Deuteronomy 27, 19, Psalm 68, 5, Psalm 146, 9. All of these give this idea of The oppressed, God wants to care for the oppressed. The oppressed are the people who are taken advantage of. They live an unjust life. God wants us to take care of them. And in fact, in Micah 6, 8, he says, you should be just. That's how you should live. So when the world around says, this world is just all screwed up and it's all God's fault, that actually comes back to us to say, are we living justly? God sent us out into the world to live this way. Are we doing it? And then it doesn't mean that we need a different president. It doesn't mean we need a different senator or rep. It doesn't matter. All of those things. Are you loving your neighbor? Because that's all it really takes. If all of us love our neighbor, and all of us do it, eventually everyone's taken care of. Sometimes we get so distracted with saving the world that we don't save the person next door. We don't live justice here on our street. In our neighborhoods. James chapter one, verse twenty seven. This I don't even for most of us, I don't even have to put it up there. This is true religion to do what? To love who? Orphans and widows are where specific gifts. Do you know why? It says this is true, true living out of just. Do you know why? Neither of those groups can give you anything back. You will never get anything from either of those folks. Help a widow? You don't give so that you can get something back. The orphan? Are you guaranteed to get something? Probably not. You take care of him anyway. Why? Because God sees that as just. It is just to care for those who have less than we have, who live a life outside of God's justice. We know ultimately that everyone will be accountable to God's justice. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we talked about this last week. God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't understand it because, guess what? He's at such a higher vantage point than we are. He can see it beginning to end. So it really does come down. Do you trust him? Do you trust him that what he says is true? I'm convinced of this, and I know that I'm not going to make a lot of friends in saying this. And I'm going to say it anyway. I have no friends. Um, <laughs> I'm convinced that you cannot love anyone to the kingdom. I know that grades against us real, real hard. I'm convinced you cannot, you cannot love anyone to the kingdom. Because simple love doesn't tell anyone about justice. It doesn't tell them why they're in the situation that they're in. If we don't use our words and we don't tell them what the gospel is, we can't simply just be kind to other people. You know what I experienced when I was uh, staying in India for, for a few months? Guess what they would do on, on, on Saturdays? The Hindus at the temples would take care of the poor. Just like the Christians would on Sunday. Just like the Muslims would on Friday. And so what are we doing? We're just doing what everybody else does. We're taking care of the poor and I'm not, obviously I've just talked about taking care of the oppressed, right? We should be doing that. We should be living out justice. So what I'm saying is you can't love someone into the kingdom. Did Jesus do that? Did Jesus just take care of people and then see it as enough? He'd feed people. He'd heal people. Cast out demons. But what did he also give them? He'd give them the truth. What would happen most of the time? He'd give them the truth and where would they go? oh, I don't want any of that. I'm out of here. (laughs) I got fed or I got healed. See you later. So Jesus got to be just, gave the truth, but all those people who left him walked away not justified. The issue is, is that we are humans and we are sinners. We ourselves need to be saved. And if we ourselves are saved, what are we saved from? Someone cared enough about you, loved you enough to tell you the truth. So, why do we not love others in the same way to tell them the truth? What's really going on? What's really happening? It should especially come from us because we know what it costs. We know what salvation costs. Um, I don't have a ton of time left. I want to share a couple of passages. <clears throat> I've heard people talk about this, and, and, and in very, very, sincere, very sincere words. I don't mean to misrepresent anyone, right? But it's like, what, what do we have to do for there to be revival, for there to be another awakening here in the United States? What do we have to do? What has to happen? You know, we pray for it, and in the 1800s, there really was one. If you read about it, it's pretty amazing. I'll leave it to you to actually read the history of it. But there's one little region where the awakening had not really hit yet. And it happened to be in the region where there was a pastor named uh, Jonathan Edwards where he preached a sermon. It's a very famous sermon. It's studied uh, in seminaries and schools. It's a very unpopular title. It would be unpopular today. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he felt such pressure such immense weight for this sermon it's uh, accounted that he would he had had it and he just read it he read it monotone he was just so scared of this thing and people people reacted to this sermon by falling on their faces in the in the aisles and just crying out for salvation lord who can be saved save me save me which I can tell you as a preacher would be pretty distracting, but pretty awesome at the same time. But listen to what he said. It's super small. I tried to print it. There were issues. What are we that we should think to stand before him? At whose rebuke the earth trembles, and before whom the rocks are thrown down. They deserve to be cast into hell. The divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God, using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on contrary, justice calls out for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of, as, as with Sodom, cut it down. Why cometh it the ground? Why does it even grow? The sword of, just, of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. His whole premise was we all are under judgment and we only live because God holds back his judgment. So then the question is why? Why does he hold back his judgment? Why do we who deserve for justice to be served from our own lives, why? Why does he hold back? Why doesn't he just judge us all? It's worth reading the sermon, but I'm just going to read the, the end. Let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women, or middle aged, or young people, or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's words and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favors to some will doubtless be a day that remarks vengeance to others. Men's hearts harden and their guilt increases a space at such day as this. If they neglect their souls and never was there such a great danger to such people, I'm sorry, such persons being given up to hardness of heart and blindness of mind. God seems now to be hastily gathering his elect in all parts of the land and probably the greater part of the adult persons that has uh, ever shall be saved. He's saying, up until now, we probably have most of the people to be saved. This is the 1700s. Thankfully, he was wrong. We'll be brought in now and probably, uh, I'm sorry, in a little time. And it'll be as it was in the great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews in the Apostles' day. The election will obtain, and the rest will be blinded. If this should be done, in the case with you, your eternal curse on this day, and will curse the day that ever you were born. To see such a season of pouring out of God's Spirit, I will wish that you had died and gone to hell before you had seen Him. Now undoubtedly it is, as it was in the days of John the Baptist. The axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the tree, and every tree which does not bring forth good fruit may be hewn down and cast in the fire. And that was the end of his sermon. And rather than people being upset that they felt judged, felt conviction, to hear, oh my goodness, I've never thought of it this way. I've never thought of the immense mercy that God just keeps me alive, and why? Why? This sparked a great awakening in that area. Why? Because there was a proper view and understanding of justice, of God's judgment, and the promise of salvation. Because the reality is, is we as people want to justify ourselves, but Jesus is the one who justifies us. The passage I want to get to today, 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because the threat of judgment is so strong, we have to be all the more loud concerning salvation and concerning grace. But because of judgment, we speak. Because the judgment is coming. First, uh, First Peter, chapter four, verses five and six, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Understand that this idea of judgment, it doesn't end there, but it's the warning. It says that we're persuaded. I'm sorry, that we, we in our lives, we persuade others. Please, please look at God's grace because this judgment is real. It's real, and it's coming. It's a warning. People ask for a revival or another awakening. This is how it starts. People have to know what it costs, or there is nothing that will lead them to the gospel. The gospel becomes just another thing in the background, vying for attention, if God's judgment is not true and if it is not real. And honestly, I was racking my brain with, what in the world do we talk about? How do we bring up some of the questions that people discuss with their friends and their family? or Even, even just some of us have. Just like, oh, I don't know about God's judgment. And I realized that time was better spent to give a warning. It's like, you know what? We can talk about things all along. We can talk about the philosophy behind it and, and theological terms and things like that. But I just, just need to say this. God's judgment is real, and it is coming, and if that scares you, why does it scare you? Because we know the answer. We know what salvation is. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through His spilled blood and through His propitiation. He Himself, who was perfect, as we talked about before, took upon Himself all the judgment, and then offers us that costly gift as our justification. So when the Father looks at us while still in keeping with God's justice, he can say, that was already paid. God didn't look out and save us because we're so great, because we're nice people, because we do good things. No. God saves who he wills. God shows mercy where he wills. God shows grace where he wills. And the offer is there. The offer is there. And I think too often we forget that part of it. So for some of us who are expecting evangelism just to happen on accident, it won't. It won't happen. God has placed you where you are to bring a message to those around you. And if you aren't doing that, he will bring another. And that person will receive a blessing and you will miss out. And when you stand before him, you'll be kind of ashamed. I didn't take it seriously. I thought someone might say something weird or thought I was goofy or something. And Jesus will say, is it goofy? You think that your salvation's goofy? Weird? Awkward? I think Jesus is funny. So then he would say, I think this is more awkward, don't you think? To speak less about God's warning to those around us who don't know him is not loving. It is hateful. Because we hold an answer that we refuse to give. So again, happy Mother's Day. I'm going to include um, See if we can include these in the notes. A way to read through Romans its going to give us some of these really high ideas and concepts for us to walk through. Or I can send them to you if, if you want to come and talk with me about it, but it's important to see that these are principles that God has laid down for us to follow in. And if we aren't, then who will? Who will live out God's justice? Who will tell his truth to the nations? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look into your word and we see the warnings that you've given us concerning your judgment, Lord, I'm just so thankful. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Romans 8, Therefore, there, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that if we are found in you, we have no condemnation. No one can raise an issue against us because you know that your salvation is complete. Lord, I pray that we would not hold to ourselves the answer to everyone's ailment. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted to know and to understand and to hear afresh the judgments that are coming upon the world because of sin. Lord, that we would turn and tell others Lord, I pray that we would live just lives. I pray that we would uphold the oppressed, that we would care for orphans and widows, that we would, Lord, make those decisions. Lord, if we, if we can't do something smart, Lord, that we would do something right. Lord, I pray that we would live out your justice on earth so when the day comes, we can say that we did all that we could and he will say, our Savior will say on that day, well done good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray that we at Refuge would, would hear those words. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.